Ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. Hello out there, my friends, in audio land. This is Tim Banal, banalofamerica.com. Welcome to the October 1st, 2005 edition of Banal of America Audio, Season 1. This week, we're speaking with Terry Hansen. He's the author of The Missing Times, News Media Complicity in the UFO Cover-Up. And you're going to hear me gush about the book in the interview, but it's all true. This is an amazing book. I highly recommend it. It's one of my favorites. I often go back and use it as a resource when I'm writing about various uh, topics for banalofamerica.com. And as I point out later on in the interview as well, uh, Terry Hansen has been a great help to banalofamerica.com throughout our growth. So it was really great to have a chance to speak with him. Here's a small bit of his bio from his website. He also gives us a lot of background about how he got into the whole UFO field. Terry Hansen's a former technical magazine editor and now an independent journalist with a special interest in scientific controversies and the politics of mass media. He has followed the UFO controversy for much of his life and has occasionally written about it for various media, including National Public Radio and the, Minnesota, and the Minneapolis Star and Tribune. He has been a guest on various regional and national broadcast programs, including Dreamland, The History Channel, Coast to Coast AM, and Strange Days. He's also spoken before various groups about UFO-related censorship and propaganda. In addition, he has organized and moderated two symposiums about the science and politics of UFO research for the Science Museum of Minnesota in St. Paul, one of the nation's largest science museums. He holds a bachelor's degree in biology and a master's degree in science journalism, both from the University of Minnesota. He's a founding partner of KFH Publications, a Seattle computer magazine publishing company. And you can find out a lot more about him by listening to the rest of this interview or visiting his website, www.themissingtimes.com. This interview was conducted on August 11th, 2005. So let's rock and roll here. This interview was conducted on August 11th, 2005. Terry Hansen. News media complicity in the UFO cover-up, in-depth. I want to welcome you to another edition of Banal of America Audio. Let me tell you a little background on how I came to find out about this guest. I was at the X conference in 2004 in Washington, D.C. I think it was Sunday afternoon, and I checked out Terry Hansen, and I was completely blown away. It was like a, a renewal of energy. I just sat there and learned so much, and I got the book when I came back to Boston, and the book is The Missing Times, News Media Complicity in the UFO Cover-Up, and Terry Hansen is an amazing individual. The book is fascinating. It's incredibly educational. I can't even stress that enough. It is just so, you learn so much from reading the book, and any serious student of ufology should already read it, and if they haven't, they should be ordering it as I speak, and Terry Hansen has been really kind enough to correspond with me over the past few months, and he, when the, the ABC UFO special came out, he was the first guy I contacted, because when it comes to UFO coverage in the media, I can't think of any other person that I'd want to speak to more than him. So I'm incredibly psyched that we have the chance to talk to him and bring this audio to the BenAllOfAmerica.com visitors. And thank you very much, Terry Hansen. Thanks for coming to the show. I'm glad to be here. All right. Uh, let me just kick it off with the first question here. Why don't you give me your background before you even decide to 
go along with this book. Okay, well, my background is, uh, my, my formal education, I should say, is in science and journalism. I have a degree in biology, a bachelor's of science degree in biology, and a master's of arts in science journalism from the University of Minnesota. So, uh, you know, I, I think my education reflects my interests as well as my my uh, working career, and that I have worked both in science and journalism. Um, I started out uh, working in medical research after I got out of college, and I uh, gradually drifted toward getting various capacities. And after I went back to get my my uh, graduate degree in journalism, I started working for a little computer magazine, and I that became kind of a long um, occupation. I worked for various publishing companies for, I guess, maybe 15 or 20 years, and uh, ended up um, starting a publishing company, which I was part owner, and uh, I was um, worked for that company up until about, I guess, um, six years ago or so, like that. All right. And then I've been more or less semi-retired. I took time out to write the book. I spent about two years writing the book, and uh, I've done some speaking, public speaking, and uh, various other things related to that sense. Well, what made you all of a sudden decide to write a UFO book? Because that's an off-the-beaten-path sort of divergence. I think my interest in it evolved gradually over time um, because I was a biology student originally, and I was very interested in the uh, issue of extraterrestrial life and, and the, the process of looking for signs of intelligent life, um, it seemed to me that UFOs were a natural topic that one had to take a look at as part of the general body of data that pertained to the subject. And it was very curious to me that there was a lot of resistance, or seemed to be a lot of resistance among the scientific community uh, to taking the UFO data seriously, even though there was quite a lot of it if you really took time to uh, review this topic. Initially, I thought that it was due just to the conservative nature of scientists generally, that they were, um, you know, they're typically resistant to investigating anything that is surprising or unexpected. Scientists, as a number of sociologists have observed, are, tend to think they know what the world is like or how the world works, and when something is discovered that's completely contrary to their theories, they often tend to just ignore it for a long time before they get around to actually studying it. I thought that was initially the response of scientists to UFOs, but over time I began to realize that there was a, another component to that, and that was that the, uh, the government's policies uh, to try to discourage interest in the subject, and then, of course, the, uh, the news media as well, which tends to be a... News media in the U.S., I think most big countries, tends to be a extension of the government in terms of what the you know, positions they take and the information they transmit. So I just began looking into that more and more. I'd heard a number of you know, UFO investigators comment that they thought the media was not uh, investigating the subject or not, not reporting the subject um, accurately and that they might even be uh, under pressure or trying to censor the topic to some extent. And I was kind of curious about that, whether it was possible so I began looking into the history of censorship in the United States going back to the beginning of the 20th century and 
moving forward to try to better understand the relationship between the media companies and the government. And what I discovered was that there, although the media companies would have us believe that they're very independent of the government, the federal government, in fact, uh, over over the past hundred years or so, they've worked rather closely with the government, particularly during times of war, to propagandize the American public and keep them in a war warlike state of mind. Uh, most typically during World War One and World War Two, and then the Cold War. And since the UFO topic really became an issue at the end of World War Two, it seemed possible that the media was playing a role. Uh, in, in managing the UFO uh, subject as well. You make a point in the foreword of the book that it's, it's not a conspiracy, really. It's more of a complicity, and that's how you uh, phrase it in the title. And so you, what you're trying to really say is that it's not so much a situation of the government outright controlling the media, but it's a cooperative effort between the two bodies? Yes, I think that's exactly right. Um, you have to realize that particularly today, the big media companies tend to be wholly owned subsidiaries of large armed conglomerates so that they have an interest in promoting war and uh, keeping the public in a, in a warlike state of mind. So in that sense, they're, they're sort of looking after their own best interests by, by you know, uh, going along with whatever policies the military has. And, um, I think that it was pretty clear, if you go back to the early 40s and 50s, that the UFO phenomenon initially was seen as a potential threat or, or a threat to national security, if you want to put it that way. Initially, the government didn't seem to know what was going on with UFOs. They, uh, there were some, some people speculating that they were a Soviet uh, weapon, Soviet secret weapon, initially, and then uh, later it became more obvious that they were probably extraterrestrial, but uh, whatever the case, they were a threat because we didn't know what the UFOs were doing. They were displaying a lot of interest in our nuclear weapons, R&D facilities, in our uh, military bases, uh, strategic areas such as ports, military, uh, industrial manufacturing facilities, and so on. This was very clearly reflected in some of the early books of the day, particularly uh, Ed Ruppel's book, uh, a report on unidentified flying objects, in which he very explicitly says that the UFOs were being seen uh, mostly around strategically significant areas. Now, there were also other documents. There was a famous memo by H. Marshall Chadwell, who was a scientific intelligence officer, reporting to the CIA in 1952, uh, where he said that the UFOs were uh, being observed near military facilities. So, obviously, anything, anytime your military facilities are under observation, whether it's from, uh, you know, flying saucers or alien or a foreign aircraft or whatever, that's a military concern. So, um, right away, you have uh, these concerns being expressed about a possible invasion scenario, and there was actually a, a denial on the front page of the New York Times by President Eisenhower and I think it was 1956 or 1954, possibly, uh, where Eisenhower made a public statement reassuring the public that the world was not being invaded from outer space. <laughs> so uh, it's rather remarkable in you know, today's frame of reference. It's 
astonishing that a president, a standing president, would have to make a statement like that to reassure the public. So, um, you know, given that situation, you can see pretty pretty clearly that the government would have had a um, had a rationale for managing how the public perceived the UFO phenomenon, uh, particularly by censoring censoring information about it, and also by um, injecting false and misleading information, what we know is propaganda, into the media about the topic. Uh, we also know that the Central Intelligence Agency got involved in 1953 because there's something called the Robertson Panel Report, and the Robertson Panel uh, concluded that UFOs, or the reporting of UFOs, was a threat to national security, and therefore uh, the public should be educated, as they put it, through a program of training, training and debunking. And this was to involve use of leading uh, news organizations, uh, popular public figures, uh, entertainment companies such as the Walt Disney Company, and generally all the propaganda apparatus that had been used so successfully in World War II. Uh, the CIA's official position is that none of this was ever, uh, none of this ever took place. But if you actually go back and review the subject. Now, if you review the media's behavior and, and other uh, evidence that relates to this, uh, there's a very strong case that, in fact, it was carried out and probably is still being carried out today. In the book, you uh, you cover a ton of various aspects of censorship and propaganda. So can you just touch on those two um, means and methods, because there's a lot of the stuff you cover under that. Okay, sure. Uh, yeah, I spent about two chapters. Uh, I, I leave the subject altogether for two chapters and just review the history of censorship and propaganda in the United States. Now, we're, we're often told or led to believe that the U.S. government does not use propaganda. Well, nothing can be further from the truth. Uh, the U.S. is a very skilled and sophisticated user of propaganda and, and has used it uh, extensively since World War I and, uh, and particularly since World War II and the Cold War era. And I think it's still very heavily in use today in the so-called War on Terror. Um, but basically, uh, when you're trying to manipulate public opinion, you, you do it It's kind of a two-step process. The first thing is censorship. You close off uh, the public's knowledge of what's actually going on. Um, and there are, there are many different ways of doing that. But uh, basically, once you've, once you've uh, blocked off the public access to the real world, then you can create an artificial world or what's called a pseudo-reality or a pseudo-environment. Um, to replace that picture, the real real world picture. So that's the role of propaganda is to create that pseudo environment. Now, um, historically, going back to World War One, the government has actually looked to the big media companies to help them do this, uh, both in terms of uh, censoring the news and also in terms of creating propaganda. And uh, typically, government tries to find uh, leading journalists and media executives to staff its uh, censorship and propaganda operations. Uh, this is sort of contrary to what many people might believe about the news business. You would think that uh, journalists would not, not want to do this. It would be kind of professionally dishonest for them to engage in these types of uh, undertakings. But in fact, they're very readily, they're very willing to do that. And uh, it's just like any other job, they're, they're happy to work for the government as much as, say, the New York Times. 
And sometimes there's no difference between the New York Times and the government. They're following exactly the same agenda. So um, that's kind of a you know an overview of how media government relationship evolved. Um, World War II, there was actually there were actually two large bureaucracies: one to handle censorship, one to handle propaganda, and those large uh, bureaucracies were staffed almost entirely by journalists and media executives, and um, there really wasn't much difference between the Pentagon and the, the media business during World War II. They were fighting the same war, they were all on the same side, and they pretty much agreed that censorship and propaganda were essential to winning the war. Now, after World War II and the Cold War era began, uh, these attitudes really didn't change any. That, uh, Big media companies continue to be very cozy with the CIA and, and the military and do favors and uh, censor news and check propaganda and so forth. So um, when the UFO issue developed, it was sort of natural that the CIA would think of, of using media companies to help manage public opinion about UFOs, and that's exactly what happened. Now, what do you have? Um, it's mostly anecdotal evidence for the government and media... Uh, UFO collusion, except for the CBS-CIA panel document. Why don't you talk a little bit about that, because I found that to be really fascinating. Okay, well, um, my approach to the, the subject of UFO-related censorship propaganda really is kind of theoretical in that I said, well, let's, if you hypothesize that UFOs are a national security issue, then it would follow that the government would want to manage public opinion about it because that's exactly what they've done in other similar circumstances. Um, I didn't really know whether I would turn up any direct evidence, documentary evidence for this, because typically uh, these types of operations are very highly classified, and often the documentation is destroyed after the fact so that there's no uh, paper trail uh, to indicate how the government undertook its campaign. But uh, I was discussing this sort of theoretical framework with Michael Swartz, who's a sociologist at, I think it's Western Michigan University, if I'm not mistaken. And he, he had uncovered a personal letter between uh, Thornton Page, who had been a member of the CIA's Robertson panel in 1953, and uh, uh, secretary of the Robertson panel. Escapes uh, me for a minute here. Don't come to me. At any rate, uh, Page in this letter, a personal letter written on a train, evidently, in hand, in his longhand, and he, he confesses that he helped organize the CBS TV show around the Robertson panel solution. Well, the date of this letter was just after CBS had broadcast a very high-profile program called UFOs, Friend, Foe, or Fantasy. It was narrated by Walter Cronkite. And the program was full of false and misleading information. It was very... It, it was a, a work of propaganda, even from an objective uh, you know, outsider's point of view. I mean, it was demonstrably misleading. And it followed very closely the recommendations of the Robertson panel, but I, I, never believed, I never really expected that I would find documentation tying the two together. But when Swartz uh, found this letter, it sort of clinched it, that it, indeed this was part of the CIA's Robertson panel effort. And it was... Uh, the letter was written in 1966, which is about 13 years after the Robertson panel made its recommendation. Now, a skeptic might say, well, uh, you just have that one documentation 
know, one bit of documentation that doesn't really approve, or it doesn't really prove that the whole program was carried out. But if you stop and think about it, what is the likelihood that the CIA would wait 13 years before implementing the Roberts panel's conclusions, do it once with a major TV network, and then stop doing it? And, and what's even more or less likely, I should say, is that we would find the one bit of documentary evidence uh, proving that this event took place. It's, you know, from a purely probability point of view, if you think about it, it's much more likely that the program was underway throughout that 13-year period, and probably still is, and that because of the CIA's very careful guidelines to you know, keep this kind of activity uh, overt, uh, there really wasn't, we haven't found any other evidence other than this one letter. And um, typically, a propaganda campaign will not work if you're just working with one broadcast outlet or one media organization. You have to be working with a broad range of publications and broadcast outlets in order for the program to work. Otherwise, CBS would have been conspicuously uh, different from all the other news sources in the way it's been reporting UFO topic, and that's not the case. They've all been very, pretty much been singing the same tune. So I don't think that that's an accident. Now, you can take that a little bit further to look at some of the other organizations that were, were known are well documented and have even admitted to have worked with the CIA during this period, one of which is the New York Times. Uh, the publisher of the New York Times, Arthur Sulzberger, had a very close relationship with the CIA and his attitude was reportedly to help the CIA whenever it wanted help. And indeed, if you, there, there was actually a, a, a content analysis done on New York Times coverage of the UFO topic that showed it became progressively more negative over time toward the UFO subject. So it's almost as if, you know, its editorial stance fell into line with what the CIA wanted. Exactly. And of course, if you know, if you're familiar with the, the infamous uh, University of Colorado investigation, the Condon Commission, as it was known, um, that came out in paperback form. Uh, it was basically endorsed by Walter Sullivan, who was the New York Times uh, science writer. Um, so even though it was an extremely controversial uh, investigation, it had a lot of uh, uh, serious problems with it, a lot of internal dissent and you know methodological problems and so forth. New York Times gave it its stamp of approval right away. The New York Times also fell into line with CBS and other big media companies in endorsing Heineck's swamp gas case when the rest of the media, national media, was kind of laughing at the idea. So the New York Times and CBS particularly uh, have been pretty much marching uh, in, in, you know, uh, in league with the CIA's desires on this issue. And uh, There's a lot of other arguments I could make along those lines, but essentially uh, it really adds up to a pretty strong case that uh, the Robertson Panel program was a broad-based program that involved some of the leading news organizations in the country. Let's go through a hypothetical situation, like a UFO incident occurs, such as like a Phoenix flight, or, you know, any something like that. How is, how is the media response indicative of their collusion with the, the government? Okay, well, there's two things that are significant, I think, if you study the coverage of an incident like that. Now, UFO sightings, when they take place, are usually reported accurately and honestly by the regional news media. So if you happen to live in Phoenix or Montana or somewhere where there's a major UFO flap, uh, you can read about it. It'll 
be in the papers. They're, they're pretty conscientious about reporting the story. But the story seems to end there. It doesn't go out on the wire services. It is not picked up by the network affiliates. Uh, freelance writers have difficulty placing stories about it in the national press and so forth. So what seems to happen is a, an embargo takes place on that story to keep it trapped in that region. And the national media just basically turn a blind eye to this. So you've got two worldviews being presented by the media. The regional grassroots media is reporting UFO stories, but the national media is scoffing at it and just generally not reporting it at all. Um, it does sometimes surface at the national level, but uh, very rarely, and uh, usually the coverage dies down very quickly after the incident takes place. There's very little follow-up or curiosity at the national level. What do you think some of the methods being used are in this collusion between uh, the media and the government, but what are the various ways they're going about doing this? In the censorship propaganda realm, what are the different sorts of things we could, you'd see and you'd say, you know, that's, that's a sign that something's going on here? Okay, well, uh, on the censorship side, um, the, way the way censorship has worked in the past is, you know, there's, it's a multi-level process you have initially the military, which orders its personnel not to talk about something that has occurred. So if there's a sighting near a military base, uh, people are called in and they're told in no uncertain terms that they are never, ever to discuss the subject, period. And most of them take this pretty seriously. So that's what's called censorship at source. And naturally, if someone from the media were to call up and ask about an event or whatever, they wouldn't get much cooperation from the military. Now, another level is that the, historically, the big media companies have willingly cooperated with the national security state on uh, national security issues. So that if, uh, say, the, uh, the president or director of the CIA or whoever calls up the publisher of the New York Times and says, look, this is a very important issue, we don't want the public to know about this, they're quite willing to censor the story. They'll pull their reporters off the story and make sure that it doesn't get any coverage. So that there are these kind of cooperative relationships, and this has been documented many, many times uh, outside the UFO topic. So it's reasonable to assume that that, that also goes on with UFOs. Um, now, another way is that the wire services have a long working relationship with the national security establishment, so that they are willing not only to censor certain kinds of stories, but also to inject propaganda directly into the newspapers via the wire, wire services. This was demonstrated back uh, just fairly recently. Uh, I don't have the exact date, but there was a story in the New York Times about um, the CIA's propaganda plans during the Bay of Pig, Pigs invasion of Cuba. And uh, the CIA had an agreement with UPI and AP to inject propaganda stories directly onto the wires. Uh, this was reported by Tim Weiner, who was a, a good reporter. He used to wrote a book called Blank Check and then later went on to work in the New York Times. Paul suspected that they might have hired him so they could keep a closer eye on him. <laughs> but anyway, um, the long and short of it is that um, the wire services do have these formal relationships and they go back quite a long way to World War II and I, I think they're still very much intact today. I think the military recognizes that it's essential to be able to control news at the national level. Uh, what are some of the other other methods? Well, of course, people are are often threatened. Uh, they're often ridiculed. 
fact, that's been a major way of keeping the UFO topic out of the press is to make people feel silly about recording something that they do. Um, no one wants to be laughed at. And if you're made a, a laughing stock for reporting a UFO sighting, the signal goes out to everyone else in the community that there's not going to be, you're not going to gain much by, uh, by reporting your sighting. So those are just a few examples. There, there are others that are even more clever and sophisticated. And, uh, I can talk about some of those too. We'll, we'll save those for the people that buy the book, you know. I think, uh, I mean, there's tons of them in there. We could talk all night about it, <laughs> about those, you know. That's one of my favorite parts of the book is we don't, don't need to give it all away, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, but that's, yeah, that's one of the highlights of the book for me, so I would highly recommend that part to be checked out. Moving on to the, the very end of the book uh, is the Journalist's Guide to Covering the UFO Controversy. That's the appendix. Um, tell me a little bit about that, because I think that, that's, that should be read by just about everybody who's, who's writing about UFOs and, and covering the UFO phenomenon, because it was very educational and, and gave some sage advice. All right. Well, yeah, that, that was one of the things that I hope I could, make, I could contribute to the journalistic journalism profession is provide some guide. Uh, advice to people who are trying to cover a story like this. I, I just did an interview, just uh, an email interview, I should say, with a, a newspaper in Illinois. And what I told her was that this is an extremely complex topic. You have to know the history of the subject going back about 60 years to really understand it. And um, that generally, any kind of scientific controversy is very complex, it's sociologically complex. And uh, there's, uh, there are many forces at play in, in sort of managing or trying to manage the topic. Uh, one factor is that the scientific community is not, uh, they, they depend pretty heavily on the Pentagon for most of their research. Most, most scientific research in the U.S. is sponsored by the federal government, and most of that research is sponsored by the Pentagon. And often as a, as a uh, qualification for getting uh, Pentagon contracts and so forth, uh, scientists have to sign away their traditional uh, rights and freedoms. They may sign secrecy agreements um, and that sort of thing, and that really puts them in a different camp. It almost splits the scientific community into what I call public science and private science. There's public science is what you read about in journals like Science and Nature or New Scientist, research that is done publicly funded and then, then openly published, but there's a lot of science that doesn't get published at all that's born classified, to use the expression, and it remains classified as long as the, the national security state decides to keep it that way. And there are documents going back to World War I that are still classified today. The United States government is a very secretive organization uh, with many, many departments and bureaus of intelligence and they all harbor uh, large volumes, literally trillions of pages of documents that are classified and, and uh, often remain that way for many, many decades. So that's, that's part of it. Um, and I think you also have to understand that there is, uh, again, a tendency of scientists to want to uh, reject things that are maybe seem a little bit outlandish or fantastic. So. Um, a lot of UFO reports, as Dr. J. Allen Hynek put it, have what's called high strangeness. They're really very unusual. They don't really fit into our 
formal framework, and I think the tendency of scientists often is to reject them just because they are strange, just because they don't fit. But I think you have to take exactly the opposite tack and uh, recognize that if, if they are evidence for, of advanced intelligence, then they probably would be rather strange events because, uh, as Arthur C. Clarke, a famous science fiction writer, put it, he said, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. So what he's saying there was that you know, a very advanced technology is not going to be easily understood by us. It is very much more advanced than what we have. Let's move on to the next section, because uh, that sort of covers a lot of the book stuff. Now I sort of want your opinion on other media matters in the UFO field and that kind of thing. Um, starting with, what did you think of the Mexican UFO footage that came out last year and the coverage of it in the U.S.? I saw uh, it was covered pretty, it, it got maybe five minutes on Fox uh, with Shepard Smith, and I'm sure it got a few minutes on CNN and some of the cable outlets, but what, I'm sure you probably saw some of that. So what did you think of the coverage that it managed to get? Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Um, I don't know if I saw any of the, the television coverage of it. Um, it did, it did get quite a bit of of uh, coverage initially because there there was you know actual photographs, which always is a little more difficult to debunk than just uh, eyewitness testimony. Um, but typically, it kind of goes through a cycle. You know, initially there's a little bit of questions asked about it. And then someone comes out with an explanation, such as they, they were, you know, infrared flares or whatever. And then that becomes the accepted explanation, and the story sort of dies away. All right, so we talked a little bit last uh, February via email about the ABC UFO special. It's been about almost six months since that aired. Um, what's your reflection on it now? I mean, we talked, oh, it was practically less, less than three or four days after it aired, so I'm sure... You've had a lot of time now to look back on it and maybe do a little investigation. So what did you think? Yeah, I think um, there was a lot of speculation prior to the broadcast that ABC might be breaking ranks and you know, going to do something new and exciting. But I was a little skeptical that they would, and it was pretty much what I expected. I mean, they didn't, they didn't, they interviewed a lot of people, they had a lot of material. They could have blown the issue wide open, but they chose not to do that. They took a conservative approach, and they only used some of the less sensational material. And they came down particularly hard on the Roswell case, as you probably know. Yeah. And in thinking about this, you know, after, after several months, I, that's what really jumps out at me about the program in general. It seemed like the whole thing was designed to tuck people in, give them a little bit of intriguing information, but they build the audience. And then, once the audience is there, come down hard and just totally destroy the Roswell case. And this seemed to me to be fairly transparent uh, in the sense that, that this is exactly what the military has been trying to do for some some years now. As you know, they periodically they always come out with another explanation of what the Roswell event was all about. Yeah. There have been multiple explanations, each a little bit different from the others, that are sort of designed to match the latest information that's come out. And I think the Roswell case is, is a kind of a political hot potato for the government. There's been a lot of pressure from the constituents of senators and congressmen to find out what that was all about. Um, Representative Stephen Schiff actually uh, began to make some inquiries about it, as you probably remember. 
So um, it's been been a problem for the Pentagon to explain away the Roswell case. And I, in my opinion, that was probably the main purpose of this broadcast was to try to uh, come down and debunk the Roswell case once and for all because it is such a politically difficult thing for the government. Now, I personally believe the Roswell incident was an extraterrestrial uh, craft of some type. Um, there's a great deal of evidence from many different quarters to support that conclusion. But uh, it, it's an important case because it indicates that the government has had physical evidence since the late 1940s. And if this were ever to become uh, accepted by the public, uh, that would pretty much be the end of the controversy. And actually, if you look at the uh, public opinion polls, I think the public has, has by and large, accepted that, uh, that fact already, that the uh, majority of Americans do, do think that there is, uh, the U.S. government is hiding this kind of knowledge. I, I thought there was something going on with the inclusion of the abduction phenomenon, I thought, at the end, because it didn't really seem, it seemed to come out of left field is it for a UFO special, sort of just threw it in there in the last, like, uh, 20, 25 minutes. And I think it really hurt uh, the, the not like, it was already going downhill with Roswell, I think, the, then they threw in the abduction thing, and that sort of was the icing on the cake as far as uh, putting the hurting on the UFO field, because they really seemed to find the most sensational uh, abductees they could find, some really wild stories about hybrids and things like that, and that people who follow the field, we know about that kind of thing, but to the general public, at that point, I think, and I was watching it with my, my family, and at that point, they sort of threw up their hands and were like, this is this is too over the top. I mean, do you think, you think that, that there was something like that going on there? Well, it's very possible. I think the, the abduction phenomenon is a, is a real problem also in that uh, it's a widely reported experience. And uh, there doesn't seem to be, uh, the government doesn't seem to be able to offer any convincing explanation as to what's really happening. They, they, their policy has been sort of to pretend it's not happening at all. So I think it's also a, you know, politically difficult topic. And uh, it wouldn't surprise me if they would you know, want it also to put a negative spin on that. Um, I think there's certainly been a sustained effort in that direction. I write about in my book, um, and uh, uh, probably the most uh, most controversial, most uh, managed aspect of the whole controversy, whole UFO topic. Now, what's your opinion? It seems to be in the last, I'd say maybe three, four years or so, uh, there's been a lot of these UFO shows that are cropping up on um, the History Channel type channels. Uh, you know, you know what I'm talking about, I'm sure. Yeah. Learning, you know, those, those shows, the uh, conspiracy, UFO stories, and things like that. What do you, what's going on there, you think? Well, I think part of it is just, uh, that it's difficult because of the large number of cable channels and the large number of producers to manage all information related to UFOs. If you go back to the period when there was a kind of broadcast oligopoly of ABC, CBS, NBC, uh, all of which had working relationships with the CIA, by the way, it was pretty easy to manage what the broadcast television audience uh, was told about various things. But it's a little more difficult now in that you do have quite a large number of cable outlets. You have streaming video on the Internet and, and all sorts of other new media. And I think this has made it somewhat difficult 
to effectively manage the topic. Um, there have been some very good programs on cable television. One is um, Out of the Blue. I don't know if you're familiar with that one. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yep. That, that was very well done, and it, it's been broadcast, uh, I believe, on the History Channel or the Discovery Channel, I'm not sure which, uh, many times. So that directly contradicts the official point of view on UFOs in a very powerful and effective way. And uh, so I think there's a bit of a battle for public mind share going on, uh, you know, with propaganda countering each, uh, each new round of revelations, if you want to put it that way. Um, some information does get through. I mean, that's, that's the thing. Uh, it, we do have a lot of media outlets now, and it's just not possible to keep them all under control. Well, obviously, we talk a lot here about the uh, the mainstream media, but what about the UFO, uh, the pro-UFO media, or the UFO media in general? I'm talking about the radio shows that are, you know, they cover UFOs. They have the UFO guests on, you know, that's where you go to listen to find out the UFO news. What are your thoughts on how that's developed and how it stands as a means of getting information? Well, it's kind of a mixed bag. Um, <laughs> there, there are some programs that have done fairly good job, I think. Um, talk radio in particular has been uh, a good conduit for discussion of the subject. And uh, it's, But, you know, it's a little bit, uh, they're a little undiscriminating sometimes in terms of <laughs> they'll put, who they'll put on the air and the type of information they'll put out. And so in a way, it's good information gets canceled out by the bad information, or the credible information, I should say. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I, as, I, as I say in the book, I think that it is not possible to, to, to keep everything under wraps. Things do slowly creep out, leak out over time. And I think to some extent the U.S. government is a little bit like the king without, without any clothes on, you know, the story about the king's new clothes. Yeah. And that uh, it's, it's standing there and, you know, they continue to deny that UFOs exist, but there's so much evidence out there now that they really do exist, and so many people who have broken their security vows and come forth, that it's, it's become a bit of a credibility gap, I guess you could say. And I think this is reflected in the mainstream media, too, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal. They continue to sing government story, but if you look at the public opinion polls, most people already accept that there's intelligent uh, extraterrestrials and that they're coming here and and so on. So um, it's a bit like the old Soviet Union where, uh, you know, people, Pravda and Taft kept uh, uh, reporting the government's point of view, but everybody in the real world knew that they were not telling the full story. And I think that's a bit like uh, the media environment today. There's uh, New York Times and CBS and so forth are, are a bit like Pravda and and uh, Izvestia and Taft and the old Soviet Union, they're still singing the official story, but uh, people don't really believe it. You're sort of a sociologist of science. You sort of understand the, uh, the field of science. What, what's your perspective on ufology, uh, the field of science, the researchers, and yeah. how do you think, as far as fields of science go, how do you think ufology holds up? Okay, well, I think the study of UFOs is, is similar to the study of other uh, advanced topics. If you go back in the history of science, study, say, uh, human anatomy, the medical science, and so on, and at one time it was forbidden by government authorities, specifically the Catholic Church, to study human anatomy. Uh, scientists could not cut open a human cadaver and, and study 
physiology and anatomy because the church just didn't want them doing it. <laughs> I think the study of UFOs is a little bit like that today in the sense that the government is not at all anxious for this particular topic to be investigated by scientists and, and uh, they prevent that by denying the phenomenon exists, first of all, and also, of course, preventing the scientific community from getting any research funds. So progress in the UFO field is hampered by this lack of funds, and um, uh, more and more academics are beginning to take an interest in the subject, but you can't really go to the National Science Foundation or some organization like that and get a grant to study UFOs. It's just not quite to that point. And I think this is not uh, not an accident. I think the, uh, the military intelligence community uh, decided that this was something they wanted to study first so that they get the upper hand on the situation, and they wanted to discourage the world of private science, or the world of public science from taking an interest in it. So uh, I think progress is slow in, in understanding it, and uh, it probably would be a lot faster if we knew what the military intelligence people know <laughs> had, uh, say, a few hundred million dollars in grants, but I wouldn't hold my breath. <laughs> Now, you talk a little bit in the book about uh, disinformation agents and uh, how they sort of infiltrate the field of ufology. And uh, recently this whole uh, Richard Doty thing came about. And how prevalent do you think this disinformation agent uh, problem is? Well, you know, uh, Philip Class just died recently, so it's, it's an opportune question. Uh, I think that was Philip Phil Class's role, my, my personal opinion, is that he was um, uh, injecting disinformation into the media. Uh, that, was, that was pretty much his job. And it's very common for the intelligence community to employ people working undercover as journalists in order to inject this kind of disinformation. Uh, it's one of many methods that are used. Uh, so I think it's pretty common. Um, the, uh, not long ago there was a report released by the CIA. It was a so-called official history we never really believe what the CIA says about history, but anyway, uh, they made a claim that uh, most of the UFO reports in the 50s and 60s were due to uh, spy planes such as the SR-71 and the U-2. Well, that's sort of a preposterous claim on the face of it if you're all at all familiar with UFO reports because uh, the UFO reports don't bear much resemblance to the flight characteristics of spy planes. Spy planes are uh, almost always high-altitude aircraft. They're designed to be very difficult to detect, uh, both visually and on radar, and they don't make right angle turns and hover at low altitude and glow in the dark and so forth, all the things yeah. that commonly reported UFO sightings. So uh, it seemed a pretty fantastic uh, claim. And uh, Mark Rodiger of the Center for UFO Studies actually found uh, a former staffer at Project Blue Book, and he asked him about this, and he said, no, it's absolute nonsense. There was no agreement between the Air Force and the CIA to cover this up, and in fact, he said he never received a single report that he thought could be attributed to spy planes. So that's a classic example of disinformation, but uh, the New York Times, of course, picked that story up and ran with it and made a big big uh, deal out of it and wound up in newspapers all across the country. So this process of injecting disinformation is an ongoing thing, and it's, uh, you know, it's done in many different avenues. Yeah, that's the troubling part is when... Uh something like that comes out, like you said, if you know anything about UFO reports, then you know it's preposterous, and sadly the general public doesn't, and, you know, they end up sort of just taking the bait. Yeah, some people are, but I think 
you know, he gives the public a little more credit for that and credit than that. And, you know, if you look at public opinion polls and also uh, polls and surveys of scientists, there is actually, the skeptics are actually in the minority. Uh, the majority of people do accept there's a UFO phenomenon. In fact, the majority of scientists accept there's a UFO phenomenon. Now, they, not all scientists may think that they're extraterrestrial. They may think there's another explanation of some sort, but they do accept that there's a mysterious there's mysterious things happening in our atmosphere which we don't understand. That the subject ought to be studied uh, further to, to clarify the issue. The tide seems to be turning, and I certainly think if when more people seem to roll their eyes when the government makes any sort of announcement about UFOs in relation to, like, like you're saying, a CIA study, or when they come out to say something about Roswell, I think a lot of people sort of, at this point, sort of roll their eyes about the whole thing because they know the government's not going to tell them the truth. Yeah, that's right. I mean, they're used to being misled by the government. In fact, um, uh, not long ago, I gave my wife was celebrating her birthday, and I gave her a birthday card that said, have a Washington, D.C. birthday, and you open it up and it said, lie about it, cover it up, and just deny it ever happened. <laughs> the fact that there are such cards being published and distributed is an indication of how cynical the American public has become about the government generally. They're, they're accustomed to the fact that the government lies to them routinely about all sorts of things, not just UFOs. So um, people are, in a, in a sense, I think people are out ahead of the, the government and uh, uh, you know, it's, it's the American public ultimately that will take the lead on issues like this. The mainstream media, they're, they're slammed on the UFO phenomenon. How do you think it's evolved over the years, and where do you think this message is going? Has it, has it been sort of, uh, at times, the, the extraterrestrials or, or the UFOs were sort of dangerous, and then there seemed to be a period where they were sort of friendly, and now it's sort of alternates. You never know what kind of alien you're going to be dealing with. <laughs> I know... At least I seem to think there's a conditioning process at work here, but to what end? What do you think? It's really difficult to know whether there's any um, orchestrated policy of slow release. Um, very possible that that is what's going on, but um, hard to say for sure. Uh, I noticed uh, some years ago, I think maybe two or three years ago, the New York Times actually did an article about cattle mutilation. And it wasn't a bad article. I mean, it was fairly level-headed and, and accurate. And it was surprising to me that the New York Times would even recognize there were such things as cattle mutilation, much less, uh, you know, do a, do a story on it. And, uh, of course, anyone who's lived in the West knows that cattle mutilations have been going on for decades and widely reported in newspapers all over the Western states. It's been very controversial and subject to a lot of uh, investigations. So... Um, it's really hard to know what to make of that. You know, it, it could be that the media is is trying to cover themselves in a way by addressing things that the public already accepts are real. <laughs> or it could be that there's a, you know, there is a slow release of information going on and maybe they get directives about what they can report about and what they can discuss. And gradually the plan is to bring people up to speed. But I'm a little skeptical about that generally, though, because I think... Um, I haven't seen too much change in the editorial stance of the big media companies over time. They still come down pretty hard on what they call the UFO believers, and, and uh, they're pretty skeptical, and pretty, pretty strong skeptical tone. So I, I don't know, uh, can't quite, quite say what's going on there. It makes the whole concept of disclosure sound pretty, pretty hard to pull off. Um, 
because they would have to do a 180 overnight, it seems. There would be a lot of people asking questions about where were you guys? Because <laughs> you know, this stuff was happening. I mean, everybody knows it's been going on for decades, and yet uh, the big media companies have really turned a blind eye to it. So they'd have a lot of, uh, they'd have a lot of uh, apologies and explanations to make in order to salvage their credibility. And I think their credibility is actually pretty badly damaged already, though, if you, if you talk to P uh, public opinion experts. They would have a field day with the UFO disclosure, with the graphics and, and yeah, the I mean, 24-hour news. It would be unbelievable. My book is it's, it's never, you know, it's far from being a bestseller or anything like that. There's only probably a few thousand people that have read it. But, um, you know, it could be seen eventually as a classic in the sense that, you know, I did focus on this topic before I think anyone else in, in a systematic fashion. So Absolutely, yeah. I think there probably will be some retrospective studies of how this whole thing played out. Um, I think the truth will emerge eventually. Um, I, I think that, you know, with uh, private space travel starting to take place and, you know, people developing technological capabilities that were once only available to the intelligence community, uh, there's going to be some some fairly hard evidence uh, over time that will, I think, remove any doubt about the reality of UFOs. And uh, at that point... Uh, the history books will slowly be rewritten. <laughs> <laughs> and you think the ufologists uh, that, that we know of, you know, the Stan Friedman, James McDonald, uh, I.J. Allen Hynek, you think they'll get the credit they deserve? I, I do think they will. Um, you know, a lot of scientists who are very well known today and, and made a huge impact on science, and I'm thinking of people like uh, Alfred Wegener, who, who proposed that the continents drift around over the surface of the Earth, in the, at the time they were living, their ideas were thought to be completely ludicrous, and they were they were practically laughed out of the scientific community for suggesting the ideas that they did. And yet, uh, after decades, sometimes after after they had died, their life work became you know pivotal and widely accepted. So it it can take you know literally 50 years sometimes, or even more, for some ideas to be accepted. I know meteors are meteorites which are stones that fall from the sky, were thought to be uh, completely absurd for about 200 years. <laughs> so it took about that long. And, and uh, even the Wright brothers had a very difficult time persuading the media that they had actually accomplished a powered manned flight. Scientific Americans scoffed at the idea and said that it was completely anti-scientific to believe that such a thing was even possible, and they refused to report what they had achieved for about five years. There's a very, book, a very good book about that called um, Alternative Science. The author is uh, Richard Milton, M-I-L-T-O-N. So there's a lot of resistance to new ideas of any kind, and especially when you're fighting a, an orchestrated propaganda program, which I think they have been. It's to become difficult to overturn the scientific uh, paradigm. So this would be kind of compared to the, uh, the Galileo Copernicus type of thing. Yeah, I, I think it would be more similar. Yeah, I mean, that, that would be a good analogy because Galileo and Giordano Bruno suggested there were, there were other worlds, and, you know, intelligent beings and other worlds and so forth, and he was burned at the stake for just making that suggestion. Uh, they were fighting the same kind of battle that ufologists are, studying, are fighting today. It's a, it's a long, it's an ongoing process between uh, the truth and, and political 
Now, in the book, you tell a pretty funny story about Phil Class, and uh, actually, I had already thought of this question before the news came out that he had died. That and uh, well, this will be airing much later than that, probably about six weeks after today. So, but um, why don't you uh, tell that story about you and Phil Class? Because I thought it was pretty amusing. Okay, well, I was living in Seattle several years ago, and and Psychop um, decided to hold their annual convention. Seattle, and so I thought, boy, this will be fun. <laughs> <laughs> I went down there with a, a friend of mine who's also interested in the UFO topic, my brother-in-law, actually, Jeff Olson. And, um, you know, we sat in on a lot of the UFO-related topics and, and presentations, which, of course, were very heavily slanted against the reality of UFOs, not surprisingly for Psychop. <laughs> and um, uh, at, at one point, I managed to get into a discussion with Phil Class after he had spoken about, I think it was Roswell. And, uh, you know, he, his initial position was that the government couldn't keep secrets. So I slowly began chipping away at that idea and suggesting, you know, that, well, in fact, they've done a pretty good job at keeping secrets in the past. You know, they've, they've kept quite a few things secret. So he gradually had to admit that uh, not only that they secrets, that also his publication for which he, for which he worked, uh, Aviation Week, had helped the government keep some of its secrets. <laughs> he, you know, his organization was complicit in helping the government keep secrets. Well, this was all sort of embarrassing to Phil, I think. And at one point, he just sort of became exasperated, and he said, well, you'll go to your grave without ever understanding or without ever knowing the truth about UFOs and so forth. Well, I don't know how he could be so sure, so sure that I would go to my grave without knowing the truth unless he was sort of on the inside. That statement by him was really compelling. Yeah. That like I had to I had to reread that like two or three times to really sort of wrap my head around what he was he was trying to say something there without without saying anything. Yeah, well I think what he was saying was that the policy is to deny the existence of this subject, you know, as long as possible. Yeah. And that seems to have been the case. I mean I talked to him years ago, and nothing fundamental has changed, at least as far as the government goes, about, about the whole topic. Well, what do you know about this uh, Disney special that was aired um, in some markets, unannounced, one time only, never to be seen again? Um, I've heard I've heard scant rumors about it. I've heard people mention it in some presentations, but I'm sure you must know something about that. Yeah, that that um, type of thing has actually happened a number of times. Oh, really? The government has, or someone in the government has evidently uh, leaked to the media that there was going to be a release of information, and it never manages to actually take place. Um, I know Disney prepared something like, like that. It's significant, I think, that Disney did it, because Disney is a propaganda, I mean, they have done propaganda for the U.S. government in the past, so... They were even mentioned specifically in the Robertson panel report as a possible conduit for UFO-related propaganda. I don't really understand the whole the whole situation around that, other than uh, you know, like like you say, they they produced this thing. It may have been a trial balloon to test public reaction. Uh, really hard to know what was going on there. There was a item that appeared in U.S. News and World Report, which is a fairly conservative news magazine, 
And the gist of it was that the U.S. government was pre preparing to release some shocking revelations about UFOs. Wow, that was in the U.S. News and World Report? Yeah, it was in U.S. News and World Report, just reported in one of those kind of Washington Insider columns or something like that. Mm -hmm. And, of course, nothing ever came of it. There was never any release of information. So you wonder what that was all about, too. I mean, are they doing some sort of public opinion experiments to see what sort of reaction they get out of these sort of trial balloons? Or I really don't know. What do you think about these stories that are coming out of uh, India now? Um, uh, it's from the Indian Daily. That I don't know anything really about the Indian Daily. It could be like Pravda, or it could be you know, it could be just a phony baloney website. But there seems to be uh, two, three UFO stories a week. And yeah, that's that's interesting to me because um, there's a story um, story told by. Um, uh, John Kenneth Galbraith is a you know world famous economist. He was uh, ambassador to India in the uh, Kennedy administration. You probably recall that. Mm -hmm. At any rate, he, he says that when he went to India, CIA was very active in India in many many different arenas. Really, uh, much to his distress because he didn't think very much of the CIA generally, and John John Dulles particularly. But at any rate. Uh, one of the things that the CIA was evidently doing in India was that they were running a tabloid-style newspaper, uh, very much like the National Enquirer, and it was really kind of over the top, you know, and he made some inquiries about it and found out that the CIA was running it. It was a CIA front organization. <laughs> oh, no. Was it called the Indian Daily? Well, you know, it sort of made me wonder about the Indian Daily as yeah. whether, whether the CIA might be behind this whether it's some sort of disinformation program or, you know, what's really going on there. I really don't know for sure. I haven't done any research on, on it to find out, but I see these stories popping up on the Internet. Oh, and I would not be the least bit surprised if the CIA is using the Internet actively to inject disinformation about all sorts of things. Yeah, that was uh, one of my next questions here. How do you think the Internet has evolved uh, as a medium with regards to the UFO phenomenon? Is it overkill and obfuscation? On the whole, I think it's probably a good thing. And that if you are discriminating, you are able to sift the wheat from the chaff. You can learn things from the Internet that you wouldn't find out any other way. So that's a good thing. There's a lot of information on the Internet, of course. It's completely bogus, and it's very misleading, and it confuses a lot of people. So that's the negative side. Uh, the Internet also provides an avenue for the intelligence community to keep tabs on what UFO researchers are saying to each other, because they can read their mail, yeah. and uh, you know, it's a great intelligence-gathering instrument for them. So, you know, it's a mixed bag, clearly, but uh, I personally think the Internet is a good thing, uh, in that it does allow information to get out that otherwise wouldn't, wouldn't be able to be uh, widely disseminated. What was the reaction after you published the book from your peers in the mainstream journal, uh, journalism area? And, and well, you weren't really, were you known as a sort of, you tagged as the UFO guy. Like, at my job, I'm the UFO guy. You know, were you like that already? Or, or was it like the book came out and then people were like, oh, I didn't, I never knew? I've gotten some uh, feedback from grassroots journalists who, who like the book quite a lot. Um, some of them are pretty skeptical. We tried to get uh, Democracy Now! 
to do a program about this, and they really backed away from it because they they couldn't quite get their mind around the idea that, there, that this kind of thing was going on, that there was a propaganda program uh, related to UFOs, which is sort of odd because you think they'd be savvy enough to realize that you know the CIA has been involved in all sorts of things. Uh, why wouldn't they be involved with UFOs too? But there's it's it's sort of a uh, you know the, the the intelligence boys have done a pretty good job at uh, marginalizing the UFO topic, and there's a lot of big media companies that won't go near it. Uh, journalist uh, Leslie Keen, who shares my interest in this topic, has tried to do, has successfully done actually a number of good articles about UFOs, but she's had a very difficult time getting them into the newspapers. They they usually are vetoed by the management. And uh, it's only when the management is on vacation or something that she manages to get something in. <laughs> so uh, it's, um, there's a pretty strong uh, opposition in you know, the organized mainstream media against the subject, even in the so-called alternative press. Uh, they won't go near it. I've noticed that. I've, I've really noticed that they, uh, it's a very hard subject for them to cover, which is really, it's really too bad because this is, I think one of the, I, in my opinion, one of the five best books I've read in, in the UFO field. Oh, thank you. It, it, it's so educational. If you, if you study UFOs, if you study the UFO field, you have to read this book because there's no other book that, is, that tackles the subject. And yeah, I think you can't. You have to understand a broader context, not just UFOs, but you know the history of the media-government relationship and mm-hmm. the role of the intelligence community in managing information generally. If you if you don't understand those, then you won't able to understand the UFO topic and how it came to be the kind of marginalized topic that it is today. Exactly. I think uh, you also think they, uh, they use the giggle factor pretty heavily, I think, in, in suppressing the UFO phenomenon. That's, that's, that's been probably their biggest, one of their biggest tools. Now, it's, the book was published in the year 2000. It's been five years since then. Um, what, what do you think, what's your reflection on that time uh, since then? First of all, the reaction to the book, not just uh, in the mainstream and from the people you know, but from the UFO community, and uh, how you think uh, things have changed since you published the book. I don't know if things have changed a great deal. I've gotten a lot of good feedback on the book, um, but I had hoped to have more. I, I had hoped to have a greater impact on the, the journalism community, and uh, I don't know if I've been successful at making many inroads in that area. Um, Part of the reason is that I, I I didn't go the traditional route of going through a big big publisher and you know, doing all the promotion and all that. I've become a lot more sophisticated about the publishing process since then, and I think if I did it today, I would do it a slightly different way, and I would do a lot more promotion. Yeah. I'm actually thinking about uh, doing a, an updated version of the book. I've um, created a new website for it, which is much more detailed and provides a lot of documents and news clips and so on that I that would have been good to include in the book that I, I couldn't do for economic reasons. So that'll kind of supplement the book, but I'm, I'm hope, hoping I can do a, an updated version and uh, publish it in a little different manner in a way that I can get more publicity outside the UFO subculture. Uh, these things tend to be kind of no, they they're accepted within the UFO subculture, but they don't they don't often make much of a splash outside of that. Yeah. In that sense, I feel that I've sort of failed. <laughs> oh no. So maybe in the long run, it'll have more impact than I thought it would. 
pretty much the final question here is, uh, what's what's next for you? Another book on a different subject, or a related subject, but I'm not quite sure which way to take it. Um, I'm in touch with a number of people that are working on projects related to this and that have this share common interest, and maybe uh, we will cooperate in some fashion, but um, I can't really, nothing really specific at this point that I'm prepared to announce. Okay. <laughs> Well, I want to thank you very much for the opportunity to speak with you. I think people are going to be blown away by this interview because we covered a ton of ground and and so much stuff. And you can learn so much from the book that I, I recommend it to anybody who who's trying to get to the bottom of the UFO phenomenon because you can it really takes the blinders away from uh, getting your information on the UFO phenomenon. It really helps you see, you get the news, uh, the UFO news, and you can kind of you can kind of put it through that filter and figure out maybe is there an alternative, something going on here. And uh, I highly recommend the book to anyone who's even listening to this at this point. Uh, you've got to get this book. It's awesome. It's amazing. It's The Missing Times, News Media Complicity in the UFO Cover-Up. The author is Terry Hansen. I want to thank you very much for this interview. I was glad to do it. Thanks, Thanks a lot for uh, giving me the opportunity. That does it for this week's Been All of America Audio, Season 1. I want to thank Terry Hansen for sitting down and talking to us. Terry Hansen's website's www.themissingtimes.com. You can find out more information there about his book and how to get it. Next week, Robert Miles, abductee, UFO documentary filmmaker. He'll be on to talk about his work and his experience as an abductee. Big thanks to all you guys out there listening. And uh, Leslie and Chiron of BenAllOfAmerica.com. You'll be hearing from me next week with Robert Miles.